Welcome back to the Hemingway List. Book. Oh, wait, not book. Epilogue 1, Chapter 1. Epilogue 1, Chapter 1. We are at the epilogue and it starts with another of Tolstoy's opinion pieces. What do you think of these now? You are so far through this great tome of a book. Haruki says, I'm not looking forward to a month of epilogues. If it's all going to be opinion pieces. Can't wait to find out what happened to our favourite characters, Berg and Vera. Okay, those are my favourite characters. And I'm also so terribly curious about what happened to our main four. What an unexpected main group to have. And leaving them almost, but not quite together, at the end was quite the cliffhanger. I need to know what happened to Sonya as well. I thought her character would have grown, would have a growth arc of some kind. It's disappointing how little she changed through the story. Yeah, Berg and Vera would be good to hear from Sonia Nikolai. I feel like Nikolai was like one of the main, main characters and he's just disappeared. Um, who else? Dolokhov, too. And um, Denisov, too. <sighs> anyway. Maybe we do find out. To be honest, I can't remember. FDLP1 says this. The Tolstoy Cambridge Companion gives background on why he felt compelled to disfigure War and Peace with these meditations. In notes for the epilogue, he divided his readers into three groups. His favourites were artistic readers who do not need the meta-historical meditations. Without meditating, they will read between the lines and perceive everything that I wrote in the meditations and that I would not have written had all readers been like them. In the presence of such readers, I blame myself for having disfigured my book by inserting the meditations. Ah, oh, yeah, okay. Well, maybe there was a producer telling Tolstoy, look, you've made some good points, but they're a little vague. Maybe you should spoon-feed them to your audience for 20 or so chapters. <laughs> Warren Kapofi says, this was an agonizing read, this chapter. I honestly don't even understand how this chapter can follow where we left off. What a jarring transition. Jarring indeed. Uh, well, chapter two is at least very short. I think it is another rant, but it's a very short rant. So here it is. If we assume, as the historians do, that great men led humanity to the attainment of certain ends the greatness of Russia, or of France, the balance of power in Europe, the diffusion of the ideas of the revolution, general progress, or anything else, then it is impossible to explain the facts of history without introducing the conceptions of chance and genius. If the aim of the Ru European wars at the beginning of the 19th century had been the aggrandizement of Russia, that aim might have been accomplished without all the preceding wars and without the invasion. If the aim was the aggrandizement of France, that might have been attained without the revolution and without the empire. If the aim was the dissemination of ideas, the printing press could have accomplished that much better than warfare. If the aim was the progress of civilization, it is easy to see that there are other ways of diffusing civilization more expedient than by the destruction of wealth and of human lives. Why did it happen in this and not in some other way? Because it happened so. Chance created the situation. Genius utilised it, says history. But what is chance and what is genius? 
The words chance and genius do not denote any really existing thing and therefore cannot be defined. Those words only denote a certain stage of understanding of phenomena. I do not know why a, ch why a certain event occurs. I think that I cannot know it. So I do not try to know it and I talk about chance. I see a force producing effects beyond the scope of ordinary human agencies. I do not understand why this occurs and I talk of genius. To a herd of rams, the ram the herdsman drives each evening into a special enclosure to feed and that becomes twice as fat as the others must seem to be a genius and it must appear as astonishing conjunction of genius with a whole series of extraordinary chances that this ram who is instead of getting into the general fold every evening goes into a special enclosure where there are oats that this very ram swelling with fat is killed for meat but the rams need only cease to suppose that all that happens to them happens solely for the attainment of their sheepish aims they need only admit that what happens to them may also have purposes beyond their ken and they will at once perceive a unity and coherence in what happened to the ram that was fattened. Even if they do not know for what purpose they are fattened, they will at least know that all that happened to the ram did not happen accidentally, and will no longer need the conceptions of chance or genius. Only by renouncing our claim to discern a purpose immediately intelligible to us, and admitting the ultimate purpose to be beyond our ken, May we discern the sequence of experiences in the lives of historic characters and perceive the cause of the effect they produce, incommensurable with ordinary human capabilities. And then the words chance and genius become superfluous. We need only confess that we do not know the purpose of the European convulsions and that we know only the facts, that is, the murders first in France, then in Italy, in Africa, in Prussia, in Austria, in Spain, and in Russia, and that the movements from the west to the east and from the east to the west form the essence and purpose of these events, and not only shall we have no need to see exceptional ability and genius in Napoleon and Alexander, but we shall be unable to consider them to be anything but like other men, and we shall not be obliged to have recourse to chance for an explanation of those small events which made these people what they were, but it will be clear that all those small events were inevitable. By discarding a claim to knowledge of the ultimate purpose, we shall clearly perceive that just as one cannot imagine a blossom or seed for any single plant better suited to it than those it produces, so it is impossible to imagine any two people more completely adapted, down to the smallest detail, for the purpose they had to fulfil than Napoleon and Alexander with all their antecedents antecedents I think I said that right anyway that's that chapter for you thanks very much for listening see you tomorrow